Um, January 20th, 2005. Started out as a pretty normal day. I was a high school senior. I was concerned with applying to schools and getting into college. I was hit by a drunk driver. He ran through an intersection and hit my car on my driver's side door. So when the car spun around and flipped three times, it landed on its roof in a ditch and the glass shattered and the airbag is what held me in place. I was held in place between my seatbelt and the airbag. The pain and emotion involved in the healing process is something that I'll never forget. I feel like my self-esteem plummeted. Every time I looked in the mirror, I saw pieces of glass and scars that were still lodged in my face and I wouldn't go anywhere without makeup on. I hated the man who hit me. He ruined my life and I hated him. I was filled with bitterness and resentment and he, he ruined my life. He took things away from me that I felt I couldn't get back. I missed out on my senior year of high school and every time I looked in the mirror I saw scars and I saw pain and suffering and I didn't think that I would ever be able to forgive him for that. I surrounded myself with Christian friends and I started asking questions and I felt like that's when I started to grow spiritually. I think I learned, I learned what forgiveness was and why you should forgive, but I still didn't feel like I should forgive the man who hit me. He didn't apologize and he didn't ask for forgiveness and I didn't feel like he did, deserved it. I didn't want a relationship with him in the future, so I didn't think that that it really applied to me. I didn't I didn't think that of the people in my life that he was the one that I should forgive. The bitterness and resentment that I was holding in was weighing me down and it wasn't affecting him. It wasn't hurting him. It was hurting me and it was holding me back from making lasting relationships. Through all of that, I felt like it was God's way of saying, I've got this, just trust me. And instead of hating the man who hit me, I started to pray for him. I felt like my walk in faith started on the day of the accident. I just didn't know it at the time. And that's why I wanted to be baptized on January 20th. Today the scars are still there and the pieces of glass are still lodged in my face, but today they're daily reminders of love and healing and forgiveness. You had a great story. It's good to be back with you guys this week. About Wednesday of last week, I wondered if I was going to be back. I, I was still running a fever on Wednesday. It went on for about seven days. And, you know, I thought, well, heck, I've been in Uganda twice. I've been in Haiti. Maybe I have malaria. I mean, I know people who bring that kind of stuff back. Good news, it's not malaria. It's just leprosy. So anyway, <laughs> it's the small things in life. You know, it's the small wins. We're in this series we're calling Love Different, and I did not realize how many English majors we had at Hope Community Church, uh, but I have heard from all 13,000 of you this weekend, and uh, let me know that this is bad grammar, that love different, difference in adverb, and that it should be differently, and da 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 Well, just so you know, uh, Love Different, this is actually a ripoff of an ad campaign that Apple had in 1997. It was Think Different. Some of you may remember that. And uh, this is actually, think different, it was actually the campaign that has been credited for saving Apple. And aren't we glad that Apple was saved? 
I mean, can you imagine life without your Mac? Can you, without your iTouch and iPod and iPad? I mean, if there was no Apple, we would have to seriously entertain the question, is life really worth living? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm thinking if Think Different could, could save Apple, maybe this idea of, of love different could actually save or salvage our relationships, even if they can't be salvaged, because I'm honest and realistic enough to know that not every relationship can be saved and salvaged. Maybe we can at least learn how to manage them from a biblical viewpoint so that they're no longer a negative drag on us, but we're free to move forward into the future. So that's what we're going to be talking about. It's going to be a long series. We're going to be in this about nine weeks together. And this whole series is basically based on this. This is where I began. How can we learn to love one another to love everyone the way that God loved us. Because that is actually the standard that's been set. God says, as I have loved you, now I want you to get out there and I want you to love everyone else. How can we do that? Now here's the challenge. When it comes to relationships, our earthly relationships, there's kind of a philosophy that's been drilled into us from the day we are born. When we get into a relationship, we automatically think this, what's in it for me? If I get into this relationship, what am I going to get out of it? Are my expectations going to be met? Am I going to be happy? Am I going to be fulfilled? Is somehow maybe it's going to make me a better person. But what's in this relationship for me? And because we think that way and because we approach relationships that way, there, there are three uh, basic ways, if we're honest, that we go into every relationship. Three basic tools that we use in every relationship. One, we try to convince. That's one tool we use. Another tool is we try to manipulate. And then third, we try to control. In other words, if we can learn how to convince people that we're right, whoever we're in a relationship with, if we can convince them to kind of see life from our perspective. Second, if we can learn to manipulate people through guilt and circumstances, and then if we can learn to control people so that we get our way, then we're pretty sure we're on our way to a successful relationship, meaning I'm going to experience what I want to experience, I am going to be happy, and I'm going to be fulfilled. And understand, the reason that we approach relationships this way is because there's one basic thing we all believe. And every relationship, if we're honest, we believe this. I'm the one that's right. I'm the norm. I'm the standard in this relationship. That means that everybody that's over here ought to come this way, and everybody that's over here ought to come this way. And that explains why we think things, hey, if, like, hey, if everybody was like me, it would be a better world. Right? How many people think that? Am I the only one? Okay, good. That was going to be embarrassing. There's three of us that think that way, you know? That's why when we're married, we'll think things like, if my spouse was more like me, we'd have a better marriage. Don't we think that? If my kid was more like me, we'd have a better family. I mean, we think things like that. And so we naturally move into every relationship. And we don't even mean to do this. We just do it naturally. We move into every relationship trying to convince people or manipulate people or control people to see life from our perspective. Now, here's what's interesting. If we can't do that, we live in a culture, we live in a society where we have no problem saying, you know what? I entered into this relationship with good faith, but I got to tell you, just not working for me. It's not meeting my expectations. I'm not happy. I'm not being fulfilled. We have no problem breaking off the relationship, walking away from the relationship. We pack up all of our baggage and we drag it with us into the next relationship. Which explains why, you know, if your first marriage fails, but you don't learn anything about yourself, what happens is you move into your second marriage. 50% of first marriages end in divorce. It goes up to about 62% by the time you get to your second. Now you would think, you would learn, right? It goes up to the 70s by your third marriage, 
And by your fourth, don't even bother. I mean, you got, I mean, 82% chance you're going to fail, right? Why? Because you're not learning anything. Life isn't changing, so you're just dragging that baggage from, and then the baggage gets more and more every relationship. And we do this, and often what happens when we live life this way, we just leave this, this trail of, of, of heartbreak and hurt and pain and destruction in our wake. That's how we do relationships. And we don't really feel guilty because there's another philosophy that we've been taught from the day we were born. Good guys win. And of course, that's us because we're always right. <laughs> Bad guys lose. That's anybody who disappoints us or disagrees with us. And at the end of the day, everybody gets what they deserve. So we just move on until Jesus comes along and messes up everything by saying something like he said in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the way you live life. You love the people who love you. If you don't agree with me, if I can't get you to see life from my side, you're dead to me, right? Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I read that. My natural response is, no offense, Jesus. But I have a hard enough time consistently loving the people who love me. I have a hard enough time consistently being a good husband, a good father, a good friend. I have a hard enough time consistently loving the people who actually have my back, the people who are on my team. And for you to set up this expectation that I'm supposed to now love my enemies, I'm supposed to love the people who've hurt me, betrayed me, disappointed me, abused me, abandoned me. Jesus, not only is that unreasonable, <laughs> to be honest with you, Jesus, that's just unfair. But what we're going to see in this series is that what Jesus has to say, what he's going to teach us about relationships is pretty much opposite of everything we've ever learned, everything we've ever been taught. And what Jesus had to say about relationships, it is so much a part of the agenda that he has for our lives. I'm going to show you why this weekend, that we're going to be in this series for a while. We're going to be together in this series for the next nine weeks, and my staff's always telling me four weeks, five weeks max. After that, everybody's bored with the whole thing. It's going to take us about nine weeks for us to unpack this, right? But this is what I think is going to happen. Every one of us, including me, because I've, I've been in this for a while. That's the downside of having to do this mess, you know. <laughs> Every one of us, including me, I think we're going to have to rethink and reevaluate how we do relationships. Everything we've ever thought about relationships. Why do I get in relationships? Because Jesus basically says this if you read the Gospels. Have you noticed he basically says the good guys don't always win? And the bad guys don't always lose. And fortunately for us, everybody doesn't always get what they deserve. Aren't you glad we don't always get what we deserve? So if you have your Bible, let's go over to Matthew chapter 5 as part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where we kind of find Jesus' agenda uh, for relationships. We looked at the earlier, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. By the way, you can read the Old Testament, and I encourage you to do that. But nowhere, nowhere in the Old Testament were the Jews instructed by God to hate their enemies. They had pretty much decided on their own that God was okay with them hating their enemies because they were pretty sure that God also hated his enemies. They saw God as having maybe a heart that was divided in two. And on one side of God's heart, all the people that he loved, those would be people that would follow his principles and his precepts, people that believed in him. And then on the other side of God's heart was a list of all the people he hated. 
all the people who didn't believe in him, all the people who disobeyed him, all the people who didn't think he existed. So God had a list of people he loved, but he also had a list of people that he was out to get, people that he hated. And they assumed since God was that way, it was certainly okay for them to be that way. And let's be honest, we think the same way also. If you could somehow get some magical uh, 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 camera that could, that could somehow x-ray our hearts and see our real hearts, we would see there are people that we love people that are close to us, maybe people in our family, maybe really, really good friends. But on the other side of our heart, now let's be honest, there's a list of people we can't stand, you know? And sometimes it's a whole group of people over here that we can't stand. And we kind of justify it by saying, well, God's that way. You know, may, maybe, maybe it's, it's a roommate who stole from you over here in this list, right? Maybe it's a spouse who abandoned you. Maybe it's a friend who betrayed your trust, you know. Maybe it's a coach who never gave you your break, but they ended up here, and they're never going to get back over here, right? And we kind of feel that way. If God's that way, it's okay for us to be that way. So Jesus, as he's speaking, as he's giving this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to clear up this confusion. He said, you've heard all your life that it's okay to hate your enemies. Uh, you were taught from the day you were born that it was okay in the Old Testament for the Hebrew people to hate the Philistines. That was their dreaded enemy. That's okay. Jesus says, you've been taught all your life that it's okay to hate the Romans who are ruling over you right now. Jesus says, I want you to know, and this is just kind of Jesus' breakout message. Okay, this is like his first public appearance, okay? And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am bringing with me a whole new standard. And the standard I'm bringing is, you can't just love your friends. I want you to love your enemies, the ones who have disappointed you, people that have abused you and ripped you off. I want you to love them too. And the word that Jesus uses for love, it's, it's the word that's thrown around a lot in Christian circles. It's that word agape. And it simply means this. When you love someone with an agape love, you, you seek their needs above your needs. You look for the highest good of that person. And, and it's not an emotion. This is not an emotional love. This is not a warm and fuzzy love. This is a love that begins in the mind. I decide to love this way. I choose to love this way. I make the decision to seek the highest good of that person in my life. I choose that I'm gonna put their needs above my needs. So Jesus wasn't saying, I want you to feel good about your enemies. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying, I want you to feel all warm and fuzzy about your enemies. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, if you're gonna follow me, I want you to make the decision that you're gonna treat your enemies the very same way that you treat your friends. I want you to choose, make the choice that you're gonna love the people who make your life miserable the way that you love the people who bring life, bring joy into your life. And we've been Christians long enough that many of us, we hear that and we assume, well, Jesus must have a practical reason. Must be, must be a practical side of, of Jesus asking us to do something so ridiculous as love our enemies. I mean, one of the things, one of my favorite books of the Bible is Proverbs. It's hard to, it's hard to preach through because it's almost impossible to outline the book of Proverbs. But one of the things we love about Proverbs is it's very simple. There's a lot of, if you will do this, this will be the result. If you will raise your children this way, this will be the result. If you will love this way, this will be the result. If you will handle your money this way, this will be the result. We love stuff like that. So we assume that if Jesus is going to tell us to love our enemies, there must be some great win on the backside. Maybe it's if we love our enemies, our life's going to be better. Maybe if we love our enemies, we're going to be happier. Maybe if we love our enemies, we're going to live longer. Maybe if we love our enemies, we're going to experience good karma. Okay, there is no karma. I just want you people to know that. I just threw that in there. Maybe if we love our enemies, we're going to be rich. 
Now that would get our attention. That, that would, you know, we're like, okay, we got to consider that. But I can't find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus encouraged these kinds of relationships where we love those who are against us as a means to our end. In fact, if you want to know the reason that Jesus gave it to us, gave us this command why we should love this way, it's in verse 44 and 45. He says this, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that. In other words, here's the reason. Here's the purpose that I want you to do that. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you could read just enough Greek to be dangerous, this is what it says. So that you will be children like your Father in heaven. I want, you to, I want you to do this so that you will resemble your Father who is in heaven. It's not so that you'll somehow benefit in this life. It's not that somehow uh, some of your difficult relationships will be patched up. It's so that we will be like our Father in heaven. Now here's the kicker, because that's how he loves us. And then Jesus gives us an illustration. Look at verse 45. He, talking about God, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's true. I mean, when it rains on my yard, it also rains on my neighbor's yard, who allows his dog to do his business in my yard. You see? God says, okay, I'm still going to let it rain on his yard. Wouldn't it be interesting if it only rained on the yards of Christians? You know? God, Jesus says God doesn't operate like that. He says, have you noticed that your heavenly father treats people who don't even like him as a friend. Have you realized, have you noticed that your heavenly father allows the sun to actually shine on people who don't even believe that he exists? And so Jesus, as he's teaching, he says, since your heavenly father is that way, I want you to be that way too. And then he continues in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now understand, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd. And when he said, when he, anytime he referred to the tax collectors, understand, in the, in the mind of the Jew, they were the scumbags of the first century. These tax collectors, they were, these were Jewish citizens working for Rome, collecting taxes from their Jewish friends and family and giving the money back to the Romans. I mean, they were working for the man. They were absolutely despised by the Jews. They were considered traitors. And so Jesus says, hey, if you're only nice to people who are nice to you, huh, you're no better than the tax collectors. And when, they, when the crowd heard that, they were like, ooh, oh, wow, Jesus, that's gonna, that hurts. That's going to leave a mark, right? And Jesus' point was, anybody, even tax collectors can be nice to people that are nice to them. If we were going to make it today, we would say, even drug dealers will be nice to people who are nice to them. Even sexual deviants will be nice to people that are nice to them. Even Carolina fans will be nice to people, you know, that, that are nice to them. He says, that's no big thing. That's no big deal. Jesus says, that doesn't make you any different. That doesn't make you any better than anybody else. Everybody does that. Verse 47, and if you greet, and this Greek word here, greet, it means if you hold someone in honor or you hold them in a high esteem. If you hold an honor or you hold someone in high esteem, or if, you, or if you hold an honor or high esteem, only your own people. In other words, your clique, your inner circle, your best friends. What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Now, what's Jesus' point? He's got this crowd, some who have begun to follow him. They're beginning to identify themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is really just launching his earthly ministry. 
Others who are considering being followers of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus getting at? He's basically saying this. If you're going to be one of my followers, I'm going to expect more out of you than I expect from everybody else. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to call yourself one of my disciples, understand there's going to be a different standard that you live by. There's going to be a higher calling. There's going to be more to your relationship than the average person. You see, the average person can, can get by simply treating people the way that they want to be treated. The average person can get by working really hard to patch up relationships if they feel like somehow it's going to benefit them. The average person can get by only having to be nice to the people that they choose they want to be nice to. But Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be Christian, the standard is higher. And the standard is this. I'm even going to expect you to love the person who makes your life miserable. And then you get the kicker in verse 48. He says this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And most of us, we've read that verse, we've heard that verse most of our lives, and we go right over and keep on going because we just say, you know what, that's just stupid and that's impossible. Why even consider it? There's no way that I can be perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect. Let me try to explain what the verse is saying. This word perfect means whole and undivided. He's whole and undivided. In other words, God, when it comes to this loving, how he loves people, he doesn't have two separate sides of the heart. It's not a matter of God saying there are some people I can't stand and there are some people that I love. God is indiscriminately in love and passionate to be in a relationship with everyone. So when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's basically saying this. As one of my followers, the closest you will ever get to perfection in this life the most spiritual you will ever be in this life is when you can treat your enemies with respect and kindness and love. It is when your heart is also whole. It's when your heart is undivided. It's when it's perfect like the Father's. In other words, according to Jesus, you can't get any more spiritual in this life. According to Jesus, you can't be any more like God in this life then when you get to the point where you can love your enemy, that's it. Now, most of us, a lot of us, if we, we've been Christians for a long time. We're on this pursuit of being spiritual, aren't we? And we even talk about that. Am I more like God this year than I was last year? How, are, how is my life changing? How am I treating things? How am I seeing life? What, what principles and precepts? But let me tell you something. When you think about spirituality, it has nothing to do with the amount of Bible knowledge you have. It has nothing to do with the amount of deep and profound books that you've read. It has nothing to do with how many Bible studies you attend. It has nothing to do with how much of the Bible you can quote by heart. According to Jesus, it's all about your ability to love. In other words, when it comes to our spirituality, the best that it can possibly get in our lives is when we're able to love our enemies. That's when we are most like God. So basically, Jesus says... If you want to be like your father in heaven, then do what he does. Like father, like son. That's, that's the goal. And this is what we have to understand. As God's representatives on this earth, and that's what we are as Christians, we represent God on this earth. We are his hands, his feet, we are his voice. As God's representatives on this earth, understand 
I want to make this very clear as we get into this series. God has a different agenda for us than he has for everybody else. Now, if you're here this weekend, you're not a Christian, you're off the hook. You go ahead and hate all you want to. Just drink the haterade. Have a good old time. But God says, once you cross the line, once you accept my gift of salvation that I've offered in the person of my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for your sins, once you've accepted that, once you're now depending and trusting in me with your life for all of eternity, once you cross that line, I have a different agenda. The standard is totally different. And you got to understand this. As Christians, we are the biggest hypocrites in the world. To think that we can go around sharing the message of God's unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness. And yet, in our relationships, we are conditional in our love and forgiveness. We're the biggest phonies in the world if we're going around telling people, you ought to be a Christian. Man, God loves you. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care how you've blown it. He loves you so much. He gave his only son, his most prized possession, to die on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And understand, when Jesus forgives you, when he died for your sins, he forgave all of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. You're going to live in the constant state of forgiveness. We love to share that message. But we're the biggest phonies in the world when we share that message. But we aren't willing to dispense that same kind of unconditional grace and love and forgiveness to one another. Now, let me get specific. Who's the person in your life that you have the most difficult time getting along with? Who's the person that seems that they're always on your case? Who's the person in your life you're pretty sure they actually have an agenda to ruin you? Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a friend who cheated on you, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's a, an ex-spouse who one day you, they stood before you and said, there really is no more room in my life for you, and they walked away from you. Maybe it's a business partner who ripped you off. And maybe you had the attitude, I'll never forget this. And you carry that chain, that weight with you every day, everywhere you go. And if you see them, your blood just begins to boil. And if they're coming down the sidewalk, you make sure you get to the other side so you don't even have to see them. That person. <laughs> okay, get, get a mental image, all right? We all have somebody like that. If you don't have one, email me. I'll give you one of mine, okay? <laughs> Okay, who's the person you just can't stand, okay? I wonder how many of you are seeing my picture right now, right? <laughs> you know what Jesus is saying in this passage? That's your target. Learn to love that person. Why? Why, Jesus? Why do you want me to do that? Because you're the instrument through which I'm going to communicate to that person unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness, and unconditional grace. It's not so that you'll get along better with people. It's not so that your life will be easier. It's just this simple. <laughs> this is the mission that God has given us as Christians. This is the standard. This is the agenda. 
So Jesus is surrounded that day, surrounded by all of these Jews. He says in this culture that was dominated by Rome, he says in this culture that was taxed to death, he says to this culture where they were beat down every day, in that culture Jesus said, you've heard it said the good guys win and the bad guys lose and everybody gets what they deserve. But Jesus says, this is where, this is where I'm taking you if you choose to follow me. It's to love your persecutors. It's to love your enemies. It's to love the person who's getting on your last nerve. Now, let me ask you a question as we launch this series. What would happen in your marriage? What would happen with that prodigal son or daughter? What would happen with your coworker or your parent or your friend or your roommate? What would happen in that relationship if you consciously said, my role in their life is not to convince them of anything. My role in their life isn't for me to manipulate them into doing what I think they ought to be doing. My role in their life isn't to control them. My calling, my role in their life is to love them, to seek their highest good, to put my needs above, their needs above my needs and just leave the convincing and the manipulating and the controlling to God. What would happen in that relationship? And see, right now, because I can smell the metal as the gears are in your Some of you right now, you're thinking, you're thinking of all the reasons you can't love this way. All the reasons this is ridiculous. It's just a stupid standard. You're thinking things like, I can't love that way, Mike, because they don't deserve it. I mean, Mike, if you just knew my story, in fact, Mike, my, my story is so tragic, so full of trauma, even if God heard my story, he'd say, you're right, you get a pass. Man, there's no way you got to love your enemy. That guy's a jerk. No. You're thinking, if you, if you just knew the betrayal and the embarrassment, they don't deserve it. Or you're thinking, I can't love like that because, Mike, the, 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 the situation is just too emotionally charged. Maybe I'll come see you this week, Mike, and tell you, if, if you knew the history and the pain and the hurt that's just been there for years. Or maybe you're thinking, I can't love like that because if I love this way, and this is a big one for a lot of you, if I love that way, I feel like I would just be letting them get away with what they did. Mike, if I just, if I just offered to them unconditional grace and love and forgiveness, I feel like I would just be, be letting them off the hook. It would be like saying, it's okay that you're an idiot, that you're a jerk. It's okay that you're insensitive. It's okay that you abuse me. It's okay that you betrayed me. It's okay that you treat me like dirt. I'm just going to love, 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 love you. Mike, I just felt like I'd let them off the hook. Or, or maybe I, I can't love like that because, man, they'd run all over me. Mike, if you knew this person, you would know they would just take advantage of this kind of love. And I, I'd end up just being a doormat and there'd be all this hurt and more pain in my life. Well, just so you know, uh, before you go there, God could have used all four of those excuses on us. He could have said when he was weighing, do I send my son to this messed up world or not? He could have said, well, you know what? They don't deserve it. I mean, they are just rotten, sinful people. Or he could have said, you know what, the, the, the idea of my perfect, holy son <laughs> going to a cross, taking on all the sin of the world, all of the weight, the consequences of their sin, and dying for these guys, that is just too emotionally charged. I can't do that. He could have said, you know what, if, if I save these people, if I extend grace to these people, well, it's going to 
it's going to be like they're just getting away with their bad behavior. And he could have said, and this is the one that's most convicting to me, you know what, if I save these people, they're just going to run all over me. They're just going to take advantage of me. So before you go there in your earthly relationships, you need to realize as Christians, maybe you haven't thought about this, but every time we sin, we're basically saying this, God, thank you for your son. God, thank you for your salvation. Now I'm just going to go do what I want to do, and you know what, I still get to go to heaven when I die. Now, we're not that blatant about it. But every time we sin, we're basically throwing up God's goodness and his grace. We're throwing it right up in his face. Do you know what he says? He says, well, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to love you. I'm going to love my enemies, and I'm going to treat as friends those who are unfriendly to me because that's my character. That's just what I'm like. Now, let me give you a heads up. If you're following Jesus or you're interested in following Jesus, he is going to lead you to love this way. He is going to lead you to love your enemies. And, and you don't have to go there, as it says. You can choose. You can choose not to. You don't have to go there, but that's where he's going to lead you. Now, if you'll let him lead you, I'm telling you what he'll do. First of all, he'll lead you over the hurdle of what you think they deserve. He'll lead you around the barrier of all the emotion that's attached to the situation. He'll lead you over the mountain of fear that somehow you're going to be taken advantage of. And he'll lead you through the wall. You'll get over what you think that they're going to get away with. Now, he'll deal with all that, but I'll warn you, if you're interested in handling relationships the way God wants you to handle relationships, this is where he's going to take you. This is where we're going in this series. Now, before I let you out and you decide, I am never going back to that church again. Um, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Let's just make it practical. How would you like to be married to someone who refused to convince and manipulate and control? Instead, they just loved you. Instead of trying to convince you all the time or manipulate you and control you all the time, how, how would you like to be married to someone who just, who just put your good above their good? Who just said, I'm going I'm to do what's best for them in this relationship. How would you like to be married to someone like that? Well, that's different. <laughs> we don't want to be that way. But we'd love to be married to somebody like that, right? By the way, I am married to someone like that. I wish Laura could be, you know. <laughs> but I'm working on it. Wouldn't it be great to have a parent that instead of trying to convince, manipulate, and control, just loved you? Wouldn't it be great to have kids like that or friends like that? You see, when you turn it around, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> well, here's the thing. That's where God wants to take all of us in this series. Now, let me just leave you with one more thought to think about. What would happen in our community if we as a church began to really love this way? I'm going to tell you, we couldn't build the buildings. We couldn't provide the seats and the parking spots for the lives that would be changed if we just began to live this way.
I mean, it's one thing to say we love people where they are, but what if we really began to love one another this way? Now, I'm going to ask you a favor in this series. Um, you know, one of the great things this year is so many more of you have gotten involved in small groups, but I'm going to encourage you over the next, we have eight weeks left in this series, I would love for you at least just for eight weeks to try a small group. Just go to the website, go to the phone app, hit the connect button. You can find one in your neighborhood. You can find one that meets at work. You can find what night of the week you want. All kinds of things. If you can't find one through the connect button, contact the office. We have a whole staff that would love to get you connected. But for the next eight weeks, I'm going to ask us to get in an all play together. That's what we mean. We want everybody studying the same thing. And even if your small group is kind of taking a break from the messages and you're doing your own thing, I'm going to ask you for the next eight weeks. I've even gotten involved with this one. I'm helping write the questions in the curriculum. And uh, because I really believe God's going to do some great things because we're going to hear, we're going to hear stuff in theory on, on the weekends. But when you get together with, with 8, 9, 10, 12 people and you talk this through of what it really means in our lives, See, this is when lives began to be changed. This is iron sharpening iron. So I'm going to ask you to do that for me over the next eight weeks. And I want you just to really think before you get together in your small group, who is that person in your life? And what would life look like if they were no longer an enemy but a friend? We're going to talk about how you can get there. Now, I know, again, uh, I'm, I'm already prepared. This week, I'm going to get a million emails about, well, Mike, you've got to hear my story. Um, so next week, this is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about your story because you have a story, and I know a lot more of it than you think. But next week, and I know it's Labor Day, and I know some of you will be gone because you've been back for a whole week now, and it's going to kill you not to get out of town again next week. I understand. I understand. Um, Next week's message is key to this whole series. Because if you don't really understand your story, if you can't get from here to here, you're never going to be able to love the way God's called you to love. So hopefully you'll be back next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your example of love in that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, you gave your son to die for us. Not when we had earned something, not when we had hit a certain mark, but while we were literally hopeless with no hope, nothing to offer you whatsoever, you looked at us and you were so moved with compassion. You sent us your most prized possession to die the most ridiculously difficult, shameful death possible to pay for our sins so we could be reconciled back to you. And to think, think that even now that your son, where it says every knee will confess and every knee will bow, and one day, and recognize him and, and give him what is rightfully his, he still holds off what, he, what his rights are and what he deserves because he wants nothing more than to be in a relationship with us. So, Father, help us to understand that. And once we understand that and it gets from our head to our hearts, Father, begin to work in our lives about what it means to set aside our rights and let go of our hurt so that we can be children like our Father who's in heaven. Father, just remind us that we have a God, we have a Father who, whose love never runs out, who never gives up. He constantly pursues us with his love. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.